Testing, testing, one, two, three. Can you hear yourself? Yeah. But the question is, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, I can. <laughs> All Welcome back to this week's Yawa. Thanks everybody again for an awesome number of questions. And if this is your first time to the show, make sure and click that subscribe button so you don't miss any of our other upcoming videos. Yeah, we had a lot of great questions. Some of them have actually been repeats from some of our other Yawa episodes. So definitely check those out if you haven't already. And we actually got quite a few requests for training specific videos, vlog style videos, nail trims, ear cleaning maintenance. And those are all videos that we do have in the works and plan on getting to you shortly. But like Ethan said, if you make sure and subscribe, you won't miss any of those. So let's get started answering questions. First question from Z Fontaine 55. What do you use for training treats and how long do you incorporate the clicker in training? I would assume it gets phased out at some point with that. Um, do you ever have to recharge the clicker from time to time? Thanks for all you do. Well, thank you for the question. First of all, what we use for treats in training, primarily the dog's food. And we'll even utilize, I would say, dog kibble as a form of a treat in situations where we don't, if we aren't actually at a meal. The other side of it is we do use at this point, um, they're called train me treats. They're, they're on our website yeah, under our real. recommended items. Yep. So store and then recommended items. You can follow the specific product right there. And then um, as far as when does the clicker phase out? We stop utilizing the clicker when we stop teaching things. So anything new that we're bringing up and teaching, we're going to use clickers um, for a majority of that and positive reinforcement. And then as far as recharging the clicker, uh, no. If you did it right the first time, they it's a hard one for them to forget. And we'll even pull it out if we need to really pull some positive focus to a training session. And instantly you click that once, you're like, oh, where's my treat? You know, so it's... It uh, definitely doesn't need to be recharged, but really good question. Next question from Stosi15 on Instagram. Have an 11-week-old GSP that I have been doing clicker training, another clicker training question, with two to three times daily. Sit kennel to both crate and their bed targeting, and he's been doing great. This week, however, he seemed totally uninterested and will just go lay on his bed or lay by the crate which is where we feed him. I usually train with his kibble. Should I switch to a different treat? Any advice? So first of all, I just want to put this little caveat in there. If he's acting off, if he's not acting like his normal self, seems lethargic or lack of appetite, that's sometimes an indication that something is going on other than a training situation. So um, especially if you're seeing, you know, a change in his stool, a change in his body condition, a change in his appetite, that would be something that I would recommend going to the vet, getting checked out, especially an 11 week old puppy. Uh, puppies can go downhill fairly quickly if they are sick. So uh, don't wait too long to get that checked out if you're concerned about his behavior changing. Absolutely. Now, however, if he's completely healthy and everything is fine, other than that, um, I would say you might just be overdoing it. Two to three times a day is a lot of training, especially obedience-only based training, and it can get boring. Puppies like a challenge. They like to have fun. And you might just be putting too much emphasis on obedience, structure, and training sessions that he's losing a little bit of interest and just wanting to go lay on his bed and be like, I know this stuff. Don't bother me with it anymore. So... Maybe a little less frequent of training sessions would be a good option. You could try and introduce a treat, uh, like those training treats we talked about, that has a little higher value than his kibble. But ultimately, we want him to still want to work when we are offering those training sessions, and maybe we just need to do them a little less often. A lot of times we say that a little bit of a good thing is a good thing. A lot of a good thing cannot necessarily be a better thing. Uh, you can definitely overdo it, even as far as doing retrieving drills with your puppy. If you just retrieve them to death, basically, they're going to lose interest in that game and want to do something else, entertain themselves, or just give up on the training session. Absolutely. The other side of it, too, could be that you may be overfeeding your puppy and he's not interested in the food like he was before because he's to the point where he doesn't need... He's fat. He's fat. 
Yeah, you're not hungry anymore. But we don't know that. We don't see your puppy's body condition. So we're just throwing out a couple options of what could really be going on. Um, definitely checking out the health of your puppy for the first thing would be our suggestion, though. Good question. Next, we've got uh, S. Thompson 6886 looking to get a second GSP. I have a three-year-old male. Would rec- would you recommend a boy or a girl as a running mate? Current dog has a fair amount of anxiety when not running in the field. I'm assuming you mean anxiety by just gets worked up or is... Or doesn't like to be alone, maybe. Separation anxiety. A little bit more clarification on exactly what you mean. Could help. Would but, help, but um, we'll or, keep answering. Yeah. We'll, not we'll running, make assumptions. We'll assume. Um, when not running the field or working, but does better around my sister's dog, large female Rottweiler, great with both boy and girl dogs, both in the field and indoor situations. So the big thing here is it's awesome you've waited this long to add the second dog to the family. Um, a lot of people we see try and get uh, puppies piled up on top of each other, which puppies are a lot of work, and that amplifies that problem quite a bit. So um, kudos to you for waiting so long. Uh, as far as a boy or girl, I guess the biggest thing is going to be all dogs can get along together. I would say that you have the biggest chance for issues with two intact males or two intact females. You've probably heard the term at one point in time, females being called bitches. And there's a reason for that. And the it can go both ways. Oh, well, yeah. Bitches will be bitches. Dicks will be dicks. I mean, that can happen, especially if you don't step in and establish pack dominance of you being at the top of that and everybody else is below that and they don't get to distinguish their pecking order by grumping at each other or exerting their own dominance. So definitely stepping in and not allowing that to happen from the get-go, like we talked about in our last Yawa about how to introduce a new puppy to an old dog, um, would be an important step no matter what male or female puppy you get. 100%. And so what it comes down to is um, any combination should work. Your greatest chance for um, for failure, let's go with that, would be two intact males or two intact females. But any combination of spayed and neutered or male-female or two neutered males or all of those things um, can be really good options. Um, I think the biggest problems that you can end up having are going to be individual dogs personality uh, wise. So you could run into a dog that has issues and that's going to be with other boys or other girls or whatever. Um, But like Kat was saying, stepping in and and being able to pay attention and teach proper behaviors and interactions between them is important. It sounds like your dog is super friendly and gets along really well with any dog. So you should be on uh, a good footing as far as introducing a new puppy. The other thing, if you have a male, you didn't mention if he was intact or not, and you get a female puppy, you'll just have to make sure that you're paying attention when she comes into her first heat cycle, that you're not letting any potential accidental breedings happen uh, because females can come into heat as early as six months, and having puppies out of a puppy would definitely not be something we would want or recommend happening. Not good. Not good. And just one last thing I want to touch on that about Ethan saying your biggest chance of failure could be having two males or two females. That being said, we have males. We have females. They're all intact because they're part of our breeding program. Mm -hmm. And the boys get along great together. The girls get along great together. The boys and girls get along great together. And that's because we do step in um, and establish pack roles as well as they have great temperaments and personalities. So they can get along. It doesn't mean you're setting yourself up for failure. Well, we put all of our boys out together. Yeah. And the expectation is that they get along. And our boys get along really, really well. I have Double them up in crates, things like that sometimes. No questions yeah. ever. No. So it, it, it all can be done. It all can be done. Great question. And good luck with your new puppy. Next question, which I think this is a really good one because it's that gets asked a lot and there's been uh-huh. controversial issues with it in the past. So here we go. From Robert Lovell. This is from Facebook. Thanks for asking this question. I have heard you make a couple of comments about the wing on a stick method of training. I recently finished the book Gun Dog by Richard Wolters and curious if you can expand more on your feelings towards this method. His method seems logical to me. So uh, the wing on a string. Ethan wants to interject. I can tell he's got his finger up. First of all, 
Um, Richard Walters wrote that book and did a fantastic job doing that uh, approximately 30 years ago. I think it's like 35 years ago, something like that, a yeah. long time ago. I mean, and I've actually, I have several of his books as well. Um, all information is good information and you can take small pieces from everywhere to learn and build. And I mean, that's ultimately what we did is you learn as much as you can and you find what works best for you and your dogs. But that book was built a long time ago and you are specifically asking about, it doesn't say what breed, but I would say that there's been a big push, especially in the last probably 15 years of dogs, um, becoming more versatile and versatile breeds specifically being pushed more towards that versatility as well as environment changes. So you look at the average dog, um, especially hunting breed dog now lives in with the family, which is not the way that it was 30 years ago, as well as they live in urban environments. And so all of these things are coming into a drastically more visually oriented dog. Breeding for retrieving, dogs use their eyes, breeding for, and and then having dogs in these urban environments, they look for a job, and that job typically involves hunting things with their eyes, because that's certainly option, squirrels, birds, bugs, whatever. So, we, seeing those two things, incorporating those two things is going to help with the answer Kat's going to give about going on a string. <laughs> that was really good background information, and definitely necessary, so that you can understand where we're coming from. So the wing on a string, getting that fish and pull out with that wing and trying to get your puppy to start visually pointing it. People want to do because it is maybe more of an older school mentality and they want to see their puppy point and they think that's a really great way to start that process. Well, let's face it too. It's pretty cool to, to watch a little, little puppy go. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. For sure. And do it once, do it twice and then throw it away get is what picture. we always say. Yeah, yep, take a picture. a picture and then throw it away. Uh, not the picture, the wing on a string. But the reason is because we don't want to put so much emphasis on the puppy learning to use their eyes to point that they can't make that transition to learn how to use their nose to point, which is ultimately what we're going to want hunting dogs to be able to do is we want them to go out, hunt, search, find birds with their nose. They're typically not going to have opportunities to point them with their eyes. And we would hope that that transition would be if they do have an opportunity to see it, they're still going to stay on point visually pointing it. Uh, but we want them to learn to use their noses. And we get dogs in for training a lot that we can tell live in an urban environment and play point chichi birds in the backyard and squirrels in the backyard all day long and entertain themselves that way. Because when we start trying to introduce scent, they're just looking around, looking around. And when they do finally catch on that they need to point that scent, then they're like, now I need to look for it. Now I need to look for it. Oh, I can't see it. Let me move in. Oh, there it is. And they work in until they're right on top of those birds, right on top of those launchers. Um, And that's also not something that we want to do. We don't want that to happen in training because in wild bird situations, that's going to mean that they're overpressuring those birds. Ultimately, what it comes down to is dogs are way too visually oriented now, and that creates problems with pointing sticks and bugs and grass and you, you have a dog that um, it really detracts from trying to get them to actually learn how to use their nose, which seems like something that would be a simple concept. You would think the dog sniffs and can be able to use its nose, but it's really not. And so not applying more um, emphasis on you, them using their eyes until they've really figured out how to use their nose is ideal. Good question. Excellent question. Next question is from... Gus underscore Boeve11 from Instagram. What age do you start training your dog? Well, depends on what age you get your dog. If you get your puppy at eight weeks old, you start training at eight weeks old. If you get a rescue dog or a dog that's, you know, older from another program, you start training your dog when you bring them home. Uh, The reason that we say this is that they're ready to train starting at that eight-week mark. So anytime after that, definitely are golden to start training. So if you waited and your puppy's now four months old or six months old, it's not like you are behind or anything like that, but definitely can start that now. And we usually start that with clicker training, um, as well as we do a lot of things that aren't necessarily formal training sessions. I want to mention that we want to develop these puppies to be great family members, part of the family for the rest of their life. And that includes managing and um, correcting any naughty behaviors before they can be conditioned to those habits. 
So jumping up on counters, jumping up on us, we need to make sure that we're not reinforcing that in a good way where they're jumping up and we say, oh, I'm going to pet you because you're a cute little puppy. Well, then they're just conditioning and going, oh, I get attention for that. So though those aren't necessarily formal training sessions, we can always start working on those with puppies as well, or an older dog. If you get an older dog as a rescue or a foster or something. Great question. Next from Shelly Delon. What should I do with my new puppy in between feeding, training, and playtime? This is an awesome question. And it sounds like uh, with having feeding, training, and playtime that you've got a lot of the things under control. The next uh, that uh, we would do in between that would be crate training. And if you've got uh, a great routine of feeding and training and playtime, you should know when is a, you include some potty sessions outside, making sure they've gone to the bathroom, then spend some time alone. It's just as important for the dogs to get comfortable in their crate while you're at home as while you're gone. People talk about separation anxiety a lot with dogs and that gets wrapped into crate training. Oh, they hate the crate or the whatever and they have separation anxiety. Well, it's not actually so much separation anxiety as they become... uh, They negatively associate the crate because they've been introduced to it improperly. Correct. Typically is the the real reason behind that separation anxiety. I actually just wrote a blog article about this. I don't know if it's on our website yet, but I think it will be either there soon or already there uh, that talks a lot about uh, crate training and routines and things like that. Absolutely. But that's what we would be doing, working on some crate time and getting comfortable being quiet and spending a little alone time. Great question. Next question from Matthias Mays, 1991. It's a longer question, so bear with me. I'm going to read it all. It's going to come up on the screen so you can follow along and not get lost. We are getting a new pup, GSP of course, awesome, at eight weeks old in May. (laughs) It will be outside in a large kennel, grass, and tiled of 500 square feet during the day from 9 to 5. 500 square feet, just so you know, is about 5 by 10. Uh, area. So with an hour break at noon, all the other, did I do math wrong? Math. <laughs> five by 10 would be 50. Oh, that's Ooh. a lot bigger than five by 10. Yes. Do the math for me quick. All the other time it will be with us indoors and sleeping in a bench. So maybe a crated bench or something. Um, but how do we introduce and start this? I'll be home for the first week and want to utilize that time to accustom the puppy to the day-night outdoor-indoor situation. I have seen your puppy videos and do realize that's a little bit different than what we've been doing. Um, With our previous GSP, I was working from home in the beginning, so I monitored, trained him up close during the day, and he was older when we started putting him in the kennel during the day. And hashtag love the channel. Well, thank you. So... Did you figure out that math while I was talking? Yeah, 50 by 10 or 5 foot wide by 100. It's a really long run. It's it's huge. Huge. <laughs> anyway, so uh, typically we tell people that if they're given <laughs> that much space outside, that they're definitely going to potty while they're out there. That is a huge amount of space. An outdoor kennel run is a huge amount of space, so that's completely yep. fine. Um, and then... What you're going to need to work on and that could be a struggle is when they're given that much free time from nine to five that they just get to pee or poop whenever they need to, whenever the urge hits them and they don't have to worry about holding it. They're going to struggle potentially with gaining and getting better bladder control. Uh, So they're like, well, I got to pee and I'm out here in my 500 square foot space. I'm just going to pee. Uh, whereas when they're in the house then, or in their crate, then they're going to be like, well, I need to pee. I don't have any bladder control yet because I haven't had to do that. So I'm just going to pee. So you may struggle with some potty training issues. Not necessarily. Every puppy can be different and learn a bit, bit differently, but that would definitely be something that I could say you might struggle with as well as if your puppy's not accustomed to being in that crate because they get all that freedom outside all the time that then they're going to fight against being in that crate and resist that a little bit more. So you'll have to try different things to help them settle down in there, but them learning that they need to be okay being in that crate at times as well. And then the last thing I could say that could be a potential issue with that much space um, is, and it's grass tiled, which I'm not exactly sure 100% what that means, but 
puppies are going to get bored from nine to five in with an hour break at noon, and they're going to find ways to entertain themselves. That's not necessarily doing it to be destructive or malicious or anything like that, but digging is a big thing that could happen in that space, uh, as well as chewing, depending on how that's set up, if it's near the house yeah. or anything like that. So they could do some destructive behaviors We've because they're entertaining themselves. Oh yeah. There's a lot of <laughs> chewing horror stories we hear when dogs have that much space and that much free time to entertain themselves. So that could obviously cause a problem as well as by the time you get home and you want to work on some training sessions at maybe five o'clock, your puppy might be exhausted because they've literally just played all day and they have no more energy to focus for a training session. So you may struggle with that if you're trying to set up your training sessions for after your dog has been allowed to just entertain themselves and play all day long. Uh, You think about people that send their puppies to doggy daycare and things like that. They get to play all day long with other dogs and entertain themselves all day. They come home and they just crash on the couch because they're mentally and physically drained. So they might not be ready to train. So you might need to do your training sessions in the morning um, before they get that freedom access to 500 square feet of space. Now that I know my math was off completely. (laughs) So, but that was a really good question. I hope that we were able to answer that a little bit with uh, my explanation there. You did great. And last but not least for uh, part one of this week, we have the scent gal 09. Why are GSPs so hard to potty train? Well, I'm going to say GSPs are not so hard to potty train. Um, some puppies are hard to potty train. Some puppies are not. And I do believe that there's a genetic proponent that goes into that. Just some dogs have a more clean personality or desire to be clean and others do not. The other side of it can go into what your current schedule and regiments and routines are. Um, and that includes exercise, feeding and watering, um, all of the things. So definitely throw in the comments some of those things that are going on. Or hit us up on Patreon where we can go into more depth about how to answer this question. And help you with your potty training because it sounds like you're having an issue there. So thank you guys for tuning in for part one. We have enjoyed answering your questions. I'm the guy with the pink gun. And I'm Kat the dog trainer. We'll see you next time. All right, guys, welcome back to part two of this week. We have a lot of great questions here. And if this is your first time to the channel, make sure and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any of our upcoming videos. So thanks for tuning in and asking your questions. The first question of the day is from GLS underscore Cade, or maybe Katie. It's from Instagram. I butcher hashtags all the time. Sorry. How to stop unwanted barking. Barking at sounds, doors opening, someone walking in the distance, etc. We like to lovingly refer to this as alarm barking. Um, and un- it's my favorite. No, our opposite <laughs> of favorite. Uh, and sometimes, and I'm not saying that's the case with your situation, but sometimes it's actually developed and the problems created by the owners because the dog woofs and then the owner goes, what was that? What did you hear? Who's there? Who's there? Who's, Who's there? at the door? And the dog goes, woof, 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 woof. And we just are getting them. <laughs> I just barked all over this. That's fine. Uh, but then the dog just gets excited and they're being reinforced and you're coaxing them into this. I'm not saying that's the case with you, but that's definitely one way that this habit can be started. Don't play the game. I also like to call it a habit because anything a dog is doing consistently, they're conditioning themselves to and creating these habits. So in anything, we need to interrupt that behavior. We need to redirect their focus. We need to stop that barking from happening so that they don't say, hey, this is how I act when I see people at a distance. This is how I act when people come to the door. Um, Now, this is all things that have to be done when you're present. It's not that you can expect these corrections and timely things to be done when you're at home or at work and your dog's at home. So um, how to interrupt their behaviors and redirect their focus if they're barking when the door is opening. Ask them to go get on their dog bed. Not ask, tell them, go get on your dog bed, kennel, stay there, redirect their focus. If they start to woof again, have them sit on their dog bed. But just 
ask another behavior of them that they already know so that you can interrupt them. Dogs can only think about one thing at a time. So if they're thinking about, oh, I need to be on my dog bed. I need to sit on my dog bed. I need to listen to these cues that are coming from my person and not, oh, who's at the door? Who's at the door? You know, they will not be able to do both. They can't chew gum and walk at the same time. Yeah. So I saw this. This is an example that I saw this in real time. So we got the opportunity to go visit the uh, research and development facility for Yukonuba dog food. And when we went into their facility with all of their dogs there, it was very, very quiet. And everybody was like, wow, this is really quiet in here. And I look around and I see all of their little trainers, little trainers, all of their trainers that work with these dogs. And I mean, it was a very impressive facility to visit because they had, um, you could see how much the dogs actually get. You know, I think people have this mindset of, you know, test dogs or whatever, get hold up somewhere. No, they probably get as good, if not better than the average dog. And But every single one of them, they had their clickers and they were sitting there marking the dogs for sitting and rewarding them. And they were pulling their focus away from, ooh, we should bark at these people because it's exciting and new and kept them on training. So just like Kat's saying, redirecting focus is going to really help with that. Yes, definitely. And then ultimately, if you have a situation where you know your dog is just going nuts when the mailman comes every day at whatever time and they're barking about that. You can do things like utilize bark collars to manage that behavior when you're not there. A bark collar is a great tool if it's not overused and not misused to get perfect timing. Yep. Get perfect timing on that unwanted behavior. So those are options for you. I hope that we answered that question like you were hoping so that we can move on to the next one. Great question. Uh, It says, uh, I love it. You got to read it. Rain Man 725. Rain Man. Rain Man. I'm an excellent driver. Right? (laughs) I know you guys have done a steadiness video, which is great, but can you rediscuss the state command? Q. Our GSP knows the Q, but she does not hold very long, especially with bumper training. So this is a great question. I'm guessing you're talking about staying and being patient for retrieve specifically in this situation. Uh, we utilize place boards for that and the climb boards specifically, they've got removable legs. You've got, so you've got a little higher level and that kind of makes it more of a deterrent of stepping off of that. Yeah. It's a hard, hard line of you're on the board, you're not on the board. And that's pretty easy for dogs to figure out as they get better. We take those legs off. So it's closer to the ground, but we really put a lot of focus on place training and utilizing um, those place boards. So those climb boards are available on our store if you're looking for something like that, but place boards are going to be the ticket. You can make other boards. These ones, these ones are pretty cool for training and have a lot of versatility with that. But the other thing that I like about using a place board instead of necessarily tethering your dog is because they have to consciously make that decision to stay there. So they're learning and training. Whereas if they're tethered, then they're, they're trying to go. And then they're like, oh, I'm physically restrained from going, so I, I can't, so I'll just give in. And then once they give in, then we're releasing them. But they're already they're still trying to go for themselves initially. So the place training and the place board allows them to consciously make that decision for themselves that I yeah. have to stay here. The last part of that would be introducing um, distractions or denials in training. So it would be having to sit there and Denials stay. are a big one that I think get overlooked as unnecessary. Yeah. You basically, you throw the retrieve and then you go pick it up, which seems, you know, boring or whatever else. But those are the kind of things, basically, all you're doing is showing the dog that every time there's a retrieve, they don't get to go make it. And that's going to be the key to building that extra steadiness. Proofing that steadiness because otherwise they start anticipating that every time there's a retrieve thrown, if I sit here, right, I get to go and they'll start releasing themselves or breaking earlier, things like that, because dogs anticipate stuff like that. Um, As well as I think that denials don't get utilized enough and we get this question a lot. My dog just barks and goes crazy waiting for their chance to make the retrieve. Well, this will help also teach patience. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Great question. Next question from Mason. This K- one's an easy one. KH50 from Instagram. What brand and model e-collar do you all use? Well, we use DT Systems collars, but we do use a variety of the models that they have available. Mm-hmm. We use the 1820. So it's H20, 1820. We utilize that in our 
day-to-day, everyday training because not only is the collar box rechargeable, but the transmitter is rechargeable. And when we're working as many dogs as we are and we have as many people training as we are, going through batteries would get A, expensive, Mm -hmm. and B, we'd have to be taking a battery out because you have to screw off the back of the little box on the transmitter, plug it into a recharger, because we do use rechargeable 9 volts too, uh, but you still have to take it out, put it in, and replace it. So... um, the 1820s for training. Take it out, put, put it, it in, in, repeat. Replace, yeah, <laughs> basically repeat endlessly. Uh, we also use the RAP 1450s when we're hunting primarily because it has that beeper for location purposes, which uh, when you're in thick cover is really helpful. That has a rechargeable collar, but the transmitter takes that 9-volt battery like we just talked about. And it has three dogs. It's a big part of that. Yep. That's the- another reason that we like to use that one for hunting. Three dogs. I usually run three dogs. Now, if we didn't guide, I would probably stick closer to two dogs, maybe. And then the 1850, DT Systems H20 1850 is a good option because it has the two dog beeper unit. And then the collar and transmitter are both rechargeable. And if you're one that, uh, you know, owns a Yeti cooler and likes top-notch stuff, uh, the SPT unit has every single feature that they've got. All the features. All the features. And then we also like the MR1100 or the RAP1400 for a really good intro or puppy collar. Both of those take a 9-volt battery in the transmitter, but the collars themselves are rechargeable. And those collar boxes are just a little bit smaller, not so bulky, especially if you're starting out with a puppy. Uh, it's not so overwhelming to their size. Um, or a smaller breed. They or smaller breeds, yep. Too. So, good uh, question. Great question. Next, we've got... Um, J Millie 28. I've got another question. Hmm, maybe they already asked one. Would you give, uh, some details around teaching woe outside in formal woe training, as opposed to introducing the cue with a clicker curious about the philosophies on this. So that would be one that we don't actually teach with the clicker often because it ends up being a few too many things in your hand, but we do still teach with positive reinforcement and that's our positive pigeon drill that we do. Um, we've seen that. We've thrown that up on the story quite a bit as well as it's been in our training series. But um, the On YouTube. Key, training series on YouTube. Training series on YouTube. Um, you can actually find those playlists on our website, standingstonekennels.com slash links. They have the direct so that the videos all come up in order. That's always a question we get. How do I watch these in order? They seem all scattered. So standingstonekennels.com slash links. Put it right here or here or right here. Um, it'll be somewhere. It'll be somewhere. So uh, the the philosophies are that we still teach it with positive reinforcement, but the clicker helps to mark, excuse me, and in that behavior and helps with timing. With the bird in our hand, we can do the same thing. So I've got a bird, dog stops, and then boom. The second the dog stops, they get the bird. And then that's when we're introducing the behavior. And then as we build on that, we can hold that for longer and longer, just like we would hold the click for longer and longer to build some duration on standing there. Yeah. So we're basically using the bird as our clicker in that situation. Yep. It marks the the behavior and it's a reward. It's dual purpose, killing two birds with one stone. (laughs) That was kind of punny. Um, So that's why we utilize the pigeons instead of a clicker for woe training. Yep. And then like all of our um, behaviors that we teach, we then collar condition. And that's where you see the formal woe training with the e-collar. So good question. Awesome question. Next question from Instagram. One of many James, there's underscores in there too, but there must be a few James out there. In your opinion, what commands are crucial to the performance of all gun togs? So, again, Ethan and I, we like to utilize the word cue instead of command. It's a mentality that we try and uh, adopt and maintain throughout training that we are cueing the dogs, we are helping the dogs, we are conditioning, training, and developing dogs. We're not commanding, forcing, or breaking them. Uh, If you can maintain that mentality, even in a silly, simple word is command and cue, you can change the way you think about things and your feelings and energy will be more positive, which that will transfer directly to the dog. And you're going to have ultimately a better mindset about your training session. And I would almost guarantee your training sessions are going to go better. 
Yeah, because people say that too. Oh, it's the same thing. Um, but the mindset is different, and that's what cats yeah. So getting back to what Black are the cues that are crucial to the performance of all gun dogs? Hmm. So if we're thinking of just gun dogs, I also think that obedience is a huge part of a successful gun dog. I think that that gets overlooked a lot of times. People are like, oh, well, they're just a bird dog. We don't need any of that obedience. They don't live in the house, yada, yada. Well, we don't work with a lot of clients like that because most of our clients also have family dogs and they're part of the family. So that obedience just automatically gets rolled into training because it's important to them. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're part of the family 365 days a year, might go out hunting two weeks out of the year. So even if you don't have a house dog, I think that obedience is very important for the development of a great gun dog. So I would say healing would be one of the cues and behaviors Mm -hmm. that I would put a lot of emphasis on. Let's start a list up here. Healing. Healing. Okay. List. Uh, Woe. Hear or come, depending on what cue you want to use. We use here for our recall. I would also say fetch, and that has to be formally taught. Hold, which also is part of our formal uh, retrieving training. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're also working with your gun dog for waterfall, I would say kennel or place training would also be in- very important, um, as well as loading up in the back of the truck. We use that same cue. I don't know. Would that be about it? Here, heel, woe, kennel. Fetch. Fetch. I would say less emphasis and need for sit, uh, but we always like to have our dogs be able to sit as well. Yeah, from the the family and obedience aspect. Yeah, for for the obedience aspect of things, for sure. Now, if you include retrievers in that from a gun dog standpoint, because they do, um, not just even versatile dogs. I mean, you've got hand signals that you can incorporate that would be overs and backs, and um, but for the most part, the rest of things are the same too. Perfect. Great question. Let's move on here. Dog Hunter, 1979. Uh, Do you hunt dogs? Or you hunt with dogs. Ah, That would be better. Uh, It says, I have a Labrador and an HRC background. I am familiar with how to teach and use blind retrieves. Is this process going to be similar with my GSP pup? He will uh, come home with me in May, so time is on my side. Thanks. Appreciate the content. It says, also, uh, he will be an upland dog, not a waterfowl dog. So I think that there is some benefit, definitely, in being able to handle to a retrieve with a blind retrieve, even with an upland dog, and it probably gets overlooked by a majority of people, um, and they just utilize more of a hunt dead when they get to the area. Um, But know the process for teaching... Uh, blind retrieves with a short hair or any versatile dog is not the same. Their mentality is completely different. They've been bred for independence. And although they can learn it, it can be done. It is not the same. You're going to see, like, they just don't want to run straight lines. They want to work winds and they want to push. And search and use their noses more than their eyes. Independent. Even with them being bred for versatility, they're not the same as a retriever. No, they're not. Dog. Now, as far as the upland aspect of things for your short hair, um, that work, again, is if you want to look at dog training as a whole, sure, it's going to be a similar process. Dogs are dogs, and for the most part, they they kind of train the same. But your steps are going to be totally laid out different as far as what you're going to be working on with that puppy. Um, I would say that, you know, there's a lot of steadiness involved in retriever work, I would assume, and then a lot of drive building. If you can kind of tie those things together the best way you can, you're going to have a strong retriever. With the GSP, you're going to make sure that they will independently hunt, in our opinion, before you start putting a ton of emphasis on healing and steadiness and everything else. So, Because uh, their job is going to be to run away from you. And then once you kind of have built that, that could be four months, five months, six months, eight months, wherever your dog ends up being comfortable hunting away from you, then we put a lot of emphasis back on the healing and obedience aspect of things. So um, there are going to be a few differences, but lucky for you, we actually have playlists that we mentioned before at standingstonekennels.com slash links that show you step-by-step how we work through the dogs. Now, those are the specific steps. They are not in the exact same order for each dog. And the reason for that is those dogs had different personalities, so they needed to be taught things in different orders. 
try and match your dog to the one that kind of fits the best. And then I would follow that specific layout. So great question. And then another question that has come up a couple times and definitely one that we want to put some emphasis on is from Katie Butler, Facebook. I have a two month old GSP that seems to be aggressive or overexcited when my kids that are seven, nine and 11 come in the room, even when they are just walking through and don't engage with her. She bites, tries to tug at clothes and growls. We have tried to say no, push her away and give her time out in her kennel. Are there things I can do to stop this behavior before she thinks it's acceptable? So first of all, Katie, great question. Thanks for Ethan's confused. No, no, no. Just two. It said two months, two months. Yes. Okay. Okay. So first of all, yes, two months, but that wasn't what I was going to say. My first of all was thank you for reaching out uh, and recognizing that if she's going to continue this behavior, it's going to become a habit. She's going to condition herself to. So interrupting that behavior and making a change sooner rather than later is very important. Now, second of all, she's only two months. Typically, our puppies go home at eight weeks, which is two months. So I'm curious to know necessarily how long you've had her. Maybe you got your puppy at seven weeks or six weeks. So you've had a couple weeks of trying to work through this. Uh, So throw it in the comments below so we can get some more info on this. Yes, but we're going to try and give you some general information and answer your question anyway. So puppies are puppies and they like to play. And if they've just come from a litter, they're kind of looking at your children as litter mates. And though that's not okay, that's the reason behind it. And it's just natural puppiness now is when we come in to try and correct those behaviors. Uh, I don't know if you've seen our video on bite inhibition training, and that's a very good place to start, especially with a young puppy like this. So that that puppy will learn that Um, Whether she's going after skin or clothes or hair or anything like that, that's all the same and it all hurts no matter how much pressure she's using. Uh, The important thing, though, that you're going to have to consider is that your kids need to be involved with this training. Otherwise, she's going to understand, your puppy's going to understand that it's only okay to do with the kids, but not okay to do with you or your husband because you're the ones that are doing that correcting and bite inhibition training. Children are very good at following directions um, and training. We actually see that a lot of times we have families come out and we say, who wants to handle the puppy? Who wants to handle the dog? And all the kids raise their hand because they're like, oh, I want to do this. And the parents are like, "Eh, I don't know if I want to show off what I don't know how to do in front of people because we have that, you know, sense of insecurity as we get older. And the kids always follow directions really well and do everything. And then it's the parents that sometimes struggle more, actually. Hey, dad, that's not how he said to do it. Right. So (laughs) your kids at age seven, nine and 11, I feel would be perfectly capable of becoming involved in this training as long as they do it correctly. So bite inhibition training is where you are trying to let that puppy know that any level of pressure or biting isn't okay by verbally going, ouch. Well, kids can not necessarily do that firm enough or startlingly enough to the puppy. And that could just create extra excitement around that situation. Yeah. The biggest thing we see with that is um, when we have friends with kids or whatever the kid's are excited about the puppies and they're giggling and playing like children do. And then they run from the puppies and the puppies chase them. And this builds a game out of playing this game that ultimately becomes a problem. And she did say that they're not even engaging when they're walking through, but if they become involved with the training, it could be easy to get that excitement that children have transferred to that situation. And we need to make sure that we're not creating more of a game. Uh, So bite inhibition training. And then ultimately, if you're still struggling, this would be a good option of reaching out on Patreon. A, you've got a young puppy that you might need some more help with along the lines of training and behavior, you know, things that you'll be dealing with. Uh, But being able to video what's going on so we can say, this is where you're Uh running into issues. Aha, Uh that aha moment. And we'll be able to see it better than just trying to read about what's going on. The, the next thing is once we've done the bite inhibition training, which is teaching the amount of pressure that's appropriate, then we can start putting more emphasis on the biting and nipping, stopping altogether. And that comes with um, redirecting focus or even corrections. And we can talk more about that, but you've got to have multiple parts to that process. It doesn't all stop at once. Yes. So, so uh, great question. I think somebody else had also asked a very similar question. So hopefully they're able to watch this and get their answer answered. 
Their question answered. Ha ha. There we go. Thanks guys for watching part two this week. And uh, I'm Cat the Dog Trainer. I'm the guy with the pink gun. And we and will catch you later. We'll be back with part three soon. All right, guys, welcome back to part three of this week's Yawa. You ask and we answered. If this is your first time to our channel, make sure and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any of our upcoming videos. And we're going to get started right away answering your questions. This one is one that we get asked similarly a lot, so I wanted to make sure that we hit on it. One man mosh pit. Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate on pointing drills for somebody who has very limited access to live birds. I have a 10-month-old Brittany and would really like to work this spring and summer to get him to be steady on point next fall. The only time I can really use live birds is if I catch pigeons or buy quail chucker from a local preserve. So, first of all, I want to say birds make a bird dog and they're definitely necessary for training. You can't really cut corners and accomplish the same goals without using them. So, consider buying some birds or catching pigeons. I mean, that that's honestly what we do to train dogs. We buy birds from bird breeders because we don't have uh, breeding pens and things like that. We don't raise our own birds. We buy them. And then same with our pigeons. We used to do that. We used to catch them. Uh, right now we have a very good supplier of some feral pigeons as well as a very well-established homing pigeon coop. So we don't have to go out catching frequently or anymore, but that's where we started. And that's really what you're going to need to do. And you're going to have to commit that, uh, time, money, and resources to training your dog. It's not just a magic freebie that you can do it without any expense or without any resources. So unfortunately birds are going to make a bird dog. Um, and then there are definitely drills and things that you can do that are going to help your dog become more steady, uh, including well training training, that's what I was going to say, which doesn't necessarily require birds throughout that entire process. Uh, no. We typically utilize some homing pigeons in the beginning of our woe training drills, uh, but you can get there without having as many birds necessary. But Absolutely. birds make a bird dog. Awesome. Uh, next question, Brandon.Banton. Uh, when doing bird work with the GSP or any pointing dog, when do you decide to shoot birds over the dog during the training process? He is properly introduced to gunfire already, and we are now on to birds and launchers. He does all the things you would expect a young dog uh, beginning bird work to do. Point some, hold some longer than others, and we have to launch some on scent acknowledgement where he doesn't establish a point. Do we move on to formal woe training so we have more steadiness on point before shooting birds or continue his exposure to birds to build more confidence in his nose? Or is there something else that I should be doing or looking for before shooting birds over him? Okay. I know that was a really long question, but it was an excellent question. And you're recognizing all of the things that are happening in your sessions. Yeah, uh, Videos are really great ways to be able to see all of this that's happening, but you did a great job of explaining what you're seeing. Absolutely. There's a couple things that go into that here. First of all, you said properly induced to birds, properly induced to gunfire. So you've checked off those two boxes. The next is going to be, he, our recommendation is that the dog is going to be pointing and holding steady enough for you to at least get into gun range. Um, usually ideally getting all the way to the birds to quote unquote flush them, um, is my goal before I start shooting birds over the dog, especially clearing that boundary where you're breaking past them and you're making that advancement without the dog trying to move with you. Now we're not talking about coming in. Uh, here's a dog on point. We're not talking about walking right next to them. You always want to come out so that you're not pressuring them to go with you, but still being able to break that barrier where the dog can see you and you're moving toward the bird and them not move. That would be the goal. If you are struggling with that or you're having that inconsistent, we have to kind of look at are the situations being 100% set up, right? Or did the dog run with the wind at its back and run over the bird or you know, some of that stuff is going to happen in any training environment. Nothing is perfect, but 
we have to look at that. Are they steady in the right situations or is it that inconsistent? The and next looking is, at the potential of environmental changes, like Ethan mentioned, yeah. the wind direction, but also the wind speed can be a harder thing for a young undeveloped nose to be consistent with. Um, really heavy winds or no winds at all. Yeah. So tough. there's a lot of environmental factors that can go into this yep. as well. But if you come down and you say, you know, all of these things seem similar. We have good crosswinds. We have good situations, all of the stuff. And he's You've just got good timing. Yeah. You've got good timing. You've got good timing. Um, but yet you're still seeing inconsistency with pointing. I mean, you could probably at that point move into either continuing down the track of pigeons that are flying away or birds that are flying away without being shot, or you could work on some formal woe training. This would be one that I would really love to see a series of three or four birds. Um, that we can worked. see all of the things that you just were explaining. To, yeah, just to help double check and, and steer you in the right direction on that. Because also, if you just keep on the path and try and continue building that steadiness the way you have been, and there's something that's not quite right about your situation, your timing's a little off, um, the, the crosswind isn't quite right for your dog, you can actually cause potentially more problems and that steadiness is never going to get better. It's going to get worse because they're going to be like, I'm now on takeout mode. Uh, so if you could video, we could see, but also keep in mind that keeping on the course, if things aren't necessarily being done right, could just cause more problems. Um, so it may be something that the formal woe training would be necessary. And if you get the chance to shoot that video, the best place to send those over to us is on Patreon where we're set up to Take a look at your videos, answer your questions, and we do that on the daily. So, great question. Uh, next one is from, do you want to do this one? Yeah, I'll read okay. this one. He's giving me a chance to read one. Thanks. From Paul Granillo. I think this was from Facebook. I have a four-year-old female lab. When training or hunting in the uplands, she always stops to mark bushes. How do I stop this? I already limit water before training. When I get a new pup, how can I present, how can I prevent this from happening. Thank you. So good question. I know that you're recognizing there's an issue there, which is number one. However, I would caution the you first to, step to recovery is admitting that there's a problem, right? We're going to try and help you with this. Second of all, though, I would caution you to limiting your dog's water when they're going to be exerting themselves. It's not something we necessarily want to do. We've talked about in previous Yawas, you know, you don't want to let your dog tank up because they can overwater themselves, uh, but they shouldn't be restricted from water prior to training sessions mm -hmm. uh, to try and prevent an issue like marking that's happening. You could because, end up with a bigger issue like severe dehydration or something. Right. Like and water is very important for recovery and proper hydration prior to exertion is important as well. Um, and I would say, honestly, that your issue is not overhydration. If your dog's not having accidents at four years old anywhere else and they're just marking, that's a behavior issue in and of itself, not that they're overwatering themselves. So the problem is the development of that behavior. And we've seen this happen in training and with dogs that we have to interrupt this behavior. We have to say, this isn't okay. Move yeah. along. Uh, you get a dog that goes out into the field and they pee and you're like, well, they haven't been out for a while. They need a potty break. I give them one. Then if they go to the next bush and they're like lifting their leg for males or females mark too, like you said, your female's doing it. We've seen females mark too, and it's going to go for round two. I just use the collar vibrate typically and say, okay, give them a little buzz, redirect their focus. Let's keep moving. You don't get a chance to pee. And I usually go, come on, let's go and give them a the little verbal cue and encouragement to keep moving. So that would be something that you could try even with your dog now, but definitely with your young dog redirecting their focus if they're trying to follow in her footsteps of yeah. I pee on this bush, then I pee on this bush, and I don't actually hunt. Um, a couple other things is sometimes dogs get bored because they don't find a lot of birds, and then they're like, well, I'm going to do this because yeah. it seems like the next best, next best thing to them. So making sure, especially when you start introducing and training your new puppy, that you're getting an opportunity on birds could help that problem as well. Yeah, and I think that we see it more in a training situation than an actual hunting situation, unless that hunting situation involves no birds. You know, like there are places, and we I had multiple trips this year that I went, hunted three, four, five hours. We didn't have any contacts. You know, it was just maybe somebody had already hunted the spot or whatever, but 
Um, those are the situations where dogs are going to get bored hunting. But in a training situation, a lot of times you're, you you end up utilizing a field that's quote unquote dirty. And that when know, we mean dirty, it means that other dogs have recently been in their training. Other birds yeah. have been planted, that sort of thing. So those kind of things can end up pulling the dog's focus, especially if they lack a little bit of desire for the task at hand. Now, things um, that can go into that, and I'm not saying this is with your dog, but it is with dogs that I've seen before. If the dog is overweight, um, that can end up pulling them to have less drive for the activity. And then they focus on other things like, well, this is what I can do. So I'm going to just pee here and there and tootle around. Um, And then the last is through that development process, like Kat was mentioning, um, we put a little more emphasis on our young dogs um, learning to hunt and run. And we do that on um, sometimes like a four-wheeler ATV. Now, depending on where your training grounds are, you may not have this option. But if you can, it kind of keeps them moving and if they try and stop to pee on the third bush, you just keep putting them in say, the dust. Come on, and they don't want to get left behind. So, little puppy on, they learn hey, we got to keep moving. And when we're in the field, we hunt and work hard. And I think all of those things wrapped together is going to get you the results that you're looking for. Yeah. And definitely don't think that, oh, well, I don't have an ATV or a four wheeler. So, I'm going to do this with my truck. It's a bad decision because all, there's a lot of blind cringe. spots on a truck, especially around yeah. dogs. And I see that happen. I see videos on Facebook and things like that all the time that I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah, look, my dog can do 29 miles an hour. That would be horrible. So that's not something we're recommending. Please don't think that. Um, but free runs where they can learn to hunt and focus on that. And then when we get dogs that are finally to the point of when we hit the field, all we're doing is hunting and they're driven for that, they won't come to to us to get pet. People are like, oh, well, your dog doesn't want to get pet in the field. No, they're working. Getting pet is for in the house. Um, As well as people are like, well, I can't run my dogs together because my female's in heat and things like that. We run our dogs in heat with our intact males too because they can focus on field work and ignore that. So I'm not saying run your dogs that are in heat and intact together and have a potential breeding happen, but we have enough faith in our dogs and control over the situation that I know that they're not going to be bothered by a female in heat. They're going to still focus on their job. Uh, they run up to sniff. You say, hey, get out of here. Go Same on. with if they stop to mark. Yep, Get out of here. Yep. Go, get to work. So uh, great question, though. Uh, Jeremy Wybush, what, Wybush. At what age do you really start working on the hunting side of training? I've got a four-month-old male. He's doing everything with obedience training, sit, stay, working on retrieving, doing good when he's by himself, so low distraction environments. I want him to be good and a good all-around dog, and I don't want to push him too fast. And he seems to have a lot of prey drive when I play fetch and hide pheasant wings for him. Just wondering if this is a good sign to push forward or keep on keeping on with obedience stuff. Uh, It's a great question, and I think that you made a very valid point about not trying to move too fast because we all get excited and we want to start seeing the bird work, and you shouldn't be moving that bird work unless you have a solid foundation. So the next thing would be... um, It all depends on if you feel like you have that solid foundation with obedience work, then absolutely you're ready to move into starting to do some bird work. Just don't overdo it. So when we typically are developing our dogs, and if you follow along with that series, you know, those are the order that we're doing those training sessions, and that's it. So you'll see we do an obedience thing, an obedience thing, an obedience thing, and then there's some bird work, and then more obedience and some other sessions and obedience and obedience, and then there's some bird work. So they may be getting bird work once a week or once every other week through that puppy stage. And that keeps it really, really exciting for them, um, which is also a good thing. So, And I know you're asking what age, but it's more about, like Ethan said, those check boxes that you've accomplished these things prior to moving on to that. Um, and then the other thing that I just want to mention um, that sometimes gets done improperly is I'm hiding pheasant wings for him. Please don't hide the wings for them and then want your dog to try and go out and point them. No Uh, pointing. That's, I mean, people try and cut corners when they can't get access to live birds by using dead birds or wings or things like that and think that that's going to help establish their dog learning how to point. Well, those do not smell the same as a live bird. They're dead. You don't want your dog thinking that's what they do is they go out and they point dead things and dead birds. Uh, We need them to point live bird scent. So, Um, People sometimes hide pheasant wings for the dog to go out, search, and then retrieve. Sure. 
hide those, put them on bumpers, things like that. But don't try and get them to be pointing them. Um, Perfect. Great question. I'm going to read one now. Ethan's got on this like reading question roll and won't get, give me a second to get in there. Okay. So from two Zong, I'm so sorry. I probably pronounced that terribly from Facebook. Uh, with your experiences for hunting wild birds, who has the advantages and is a little better? A natural hunting dog with basic obedience, a finished title dog in NAVDA or AKC, or a field trial dog? This is a good question, and an I definitely awesome think that it's going to be controversial, but you are asking in our experience and our opinion. So that's what we're going to go with. trail dogs suck. No, I'm just, <laughs> just kidding. I'm just teasing. Uh, so like I mentioned in a different question about, I think that there's importance for obedience to be an aspect of all hunting dog training. Uh, that goes to, that can carry over to um, those higher levels of testing in NAVDA and AKC expect an exceedingly high level of obedience and steadiness. And that steadiness is obedience as well as there's cooperation and things like that involved in achieving those high standards. And I think that if a dog can excel at those high levels, it means, um, and I say excel, not just get titled in those things. Um, sometimes I've seen dogs that squeak by and it takes them 30 passes or 30 runs or 40 runs to become a master hunter. Well, I wouldn't say that they excelled at that high level. I would say that they finally got there. Um, so when they excel at those higher levels of testing, I think that they are going to make more quality hunting dogs because they're going to be more obedient and not just necessarily potentially out there hunting for themselves. I also think that this question could be opinion based in a sense of what kind of hunting you're doing and where you're doing that hunting. Yeah. That's Um, the biggest part of it is, um, each of those dogs kind of represents a different, um, a different situation or a different style. So yeah, typically field trial dogs are going to cover that open ground, that bigger country better than a closer working dog that ran through a hunt test. And that not always, but that can sometimes help you find more birds. If you're in those big open countries without you having to cover all that open ground yourself. Uh, like Ethan was out in Montana hunting and they had some big open country and some rolling Hills. And he's like, man, I'm glad my dogs are covering a lot of ground not maybe a field trial quality run, but definitely covering enough ground that he didn't have to walk over to that hill and then that hill and then that hill and wear himself out. He let the dogs work their butts off, which is what they love to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what what do you have to say on that? Uh, well, I would say that a natural hunting dog with obedience work would be considered a, a standard meat dog. And a lot of people kill a lot of birds over meat dogs. Um, so there's no issues with that. It's, is it better or worse than your Navdar AKC dog or field trial dog? I, I, my only point with the differences in there would be if you look at how those tests are laid out, this is where as much as run in the field trial aspect of things could get you some more fines or some more exposure in a bigger piece of country in the puppy division of that. The goal is not even to uh, point birds. It's just to run. It's evaluating run and the potential for them to go on to the next level. Because all of the puppy tests are to evaluate potential, right? So in that, you're evaluating run, which to me says that there's a slight disconnect from true hunting dog involved Searching with purpose and being productive and finding these birds. That would be personal opinion. And then when you look at Navda and AKC, um, you have a similar puppy test as far as um, steadiness. Steadiness is goes. similar. Um, but then with the Navda portion, you're incorporating versatility. So a tracking portion and a water portion. So if you're just looking for a bird dog, I would say, you know, it's, but it does ask about finish the highest level of achievement, right? No. A finished title dog. So I made the assumption of highest the level. highest level. Yeah. So, but even, even that, uh, I would say that Navda probably requires the most obedience. AKC is a close second at that highest level. I mean, because you've got to be pretty dang steady. Um, but then the Navda aspect of things, you've got to be pretty obedient. And a really strong retriever, very polished, finished retrieve. Um, and I was going to ask, isn't there some 
trials that there isn't even a retrieving portion in or some breeds. Yes. And he didn't specifically say short hairs. So, you know, when you're looking at a field trial dog that they're not even expected and necessarily need to retrieve in those games, well, that's not going to make a great hunting dog to me. I don't think most Brittany steaks are retrieving steaks and most pointer, like English pointer steaks are retrieving steaks. Now that somebody can correct me on that. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but but to me, I need a retriever. I need a dog that's willing to retrieve those birds that I'm shooting for him to be a great hunting dog. Um, Which is why we play the games that we do. They most accurately represent what we're trying to produce. And they're going to represent the type of dog we want to hunt behind. So I think that if you just work on the same basics and don't title your dog, you can still have an excellent hunting dog. Mm-hmm. But they should still be trying to be trained and worked towards those same expectations, um, maybe not steadiness in the field for a steady to wing shot and fall like we've talked before for an actual meat hunting dog, but um, having still still steadiness and obedience in the field. The last little thing that I can touch on that is nothing outweighs the exposure of actually hunting wild birds. For so sure. if you have all the titles, but the dog's never hunted, that meat dog's going to outhunt them always. Same thing with all of the rest of it. So if you then take take that meat dog or the hunting dog with some obedience, whatever, and you apply all of the rules that are involved in those, you're going to have the best of the best situation. But you need, um, you truly need that experience. And there is nothing that substitutes for wild bird experience. 100%. And that is a very good point that Ethan just made. You need hunting experience. And I think that we've both seen this, that sometimes your dog training hobby and your expectations of meeting these high levels of testing is potentially going to ruin your hunting dog because people think, well, I'm working on this steadiness and I can't let them break to, you know, hunt when we're hunting. They have to stay steady to wing shot and fall. So I have to maintain that during hunting season, or I just train, train, train all the time on these crappy little preserve birds. And so sometimes we say, putting too much emphasis on testing, but not giving the opportunity to hunt and gain that experience could put you at a disadvantage of creating an actual dog that you want to hunt behind and enjoy and not just test, 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 train, train, train. Didn't think you'd hear that today, did you? Your dog training hobby is ruining your bird dog, potentially. All right, last question. Working conditioning, uh, my Brittany to range a little closer. He is checking back more now. Any advice on keeping him closer without calling him right back to me? Um, it's This is a good one, and it won't take too long, I think, to go into it. Um, Brittany's um, are, we actually just talked about Brittany's. A lot of times bred or originally bred for field trials, but specific dogs are going to have desires to run specific distances. That's just a natural thing that's bred into them, dogs to range further or range closer. Um, so you are fighting against natural tendencies. You can work through that with conditioning, like you used the word, working, conditioning my dog to stay closer. Um, we utilize vibrate in that situation or enough stimulation to pull focus. But as soon as the dog's back where you feel comfortable, let go of it. And there's no more um, interaction other than that. And they'll figure out pretty quick that, all right, I'm coming back because he's talking to me with the collar. And then now I don't hear it anymore. I can go back to what I'm doing. And that's a, a silent and easy way to handle them into range. But you are pretty consistently going to have to stay on that if you ever want to truly make progress to the point you're where you're going to have to very much condition that. Yes, it'll be hard. Yep, it'll be hard to fight against that. Which is why we we recommend getting with a dog that is um, being finding, bred by yeah, yeah finding yeah, a breed and breeder that are going to match your goals and hunting styles with the dog that's going to meet that. Yep, great question though. Just stay on it; you'll get there. Thanks for tuning in for part three of our Yawa this time. And I'm Kat, the dog trainer. I'm the guy with the pink gun. We'll be back next week. Thanks, guys.